It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... can I please have your attention? Hi, I'm Chris Skywalt, and this is The Remnant. Is Jonah Goldberg's, but you don't get a Jonah Goldberg. You get a Chris Steyerwall today. I assume Jonah is somewhere uh, in a lab developing a cigar so potent that it can clear out an entire bus stop. That a cigar so, of such pungency, such acridness, that uh, you he could empty out an entire fish show. That's what I think he's up to. That's what I hope he's up to. Um, but you don't have him, so you get me. Now it is almost March. And since it is almost March in an election year, that means that it's almost time to have sensible conversations about things that are likely to happen in the coming midterm election. Um, I don't know whether you know this, but there's been uh, so much flummery. There's always so much flummery where people say, well, what do you think is going to happen? You're like, well, I don't know. What do you think is going to happen? And it goes on like this for a while. And you say, well, when we get closer to the end and we see how the primaries are going to shape up, then I'll really be able to tell you. So if you ask yourself, who would be the perfect person to talk about this subject with, about how the map is shaping up, how do things really look, all of that stuff, it would be Amy Walter. Uh, she is, among other many wonderful things, uh, she is the editor-in-chief and the publisher of the Cook Political Report with Amy Walter. Amy Walter, welcome to The Remnant. Well, thank you, Chris. I'm so happy to be here with you. I love that it is now the Cook Political Report with Amy Walter. Thank like, you. Like I you're stuck a, that right in there. Didn't yeah, exactly. I? Like it's a band. I like it. <laughs> You'll be playing. I do. With- I'm right. That's kind of true. Like lead vocals. I've got a great group with me. Exactly. You know, we've got a great drummer, some good folks on bass. It's, it's pretty rocking. You guys really have put together. A, a, uh, just to gush briefly, you guys have really put together a pretty great team, and uh, with. Guys like Wasserman. I mean, you just have so many go-to resources. It's, it's it is a nice feeling. I am sure. Okay, so let me lay it out this way. Here's my theory of the case. Okay. So in about uh, November, or about 30 seconds after uh, Virginia was called uh, for Glenn Youngkin, um, Democrats lost all the blood drained out of their body, and they realized. We're in a much more challenging environment than we thought we would. The Trump stuff doesn't work. And Republicans immediately were like, we're going to win every seat on earth. So I think there, I I count the overconfidence, underconfidence waves. So the thing that I think is, if you're going into an election, you want to be underconfident, not overconfident. You want to be working harder. You want to be trying harder. You want to be Avis, right? You want to be like running into it. Um, I have observed that Democrats seem to have gotten some religion 
Um, I read the piece, uh, Dan Baltz's piece about uh, the study from Elaine Kmark uh, about Democrat overconfidence. I've seen a lot of markers that say Democrats are aware of their problem. And it seems like Republicans are maybe a little overconfident. Is that where the sine waves are right now? Um, I think that's fair. Let me start with this, Chris, which is just in general, in, in all my years in Washington, there are some, uh, ma- there are many demarcations between the two parties, okay? Ideologically, policy-wise, personality-wise. But there's also a very big difference in terms of like the way in which they see the world, in terms of maybe we can call it their, it, it, their makeup. A personality mm-hmm. makeup. Like the id of the party. Like the id of the party. And Democrats are just much more uh, pessimistic. They are glass half full. Republicans much more glass. Oh, no, wait. Yeah. Glass half full, glass half empty, whatever. The Republicans are the much more on the optimistic side. Yeah, yeah, half yeah. full. Democrats are always the half empty party. Even when things are going well. I'll have Democrats come up to me and say, all right, how are we going to blow this election? What are we going to do wrong? How are we going to lose this? The Dems despair headline on hot key is a very useful one to have. It's always the way they work. They are just, just, that's the the way that their mind works. Republicans have traditionally been much more overconfident, right? Now, the Trump era was an exception to that rule because it was nothing they had ever seen before. But I remember going into elections like, let's say, the 1998 midterms with, which, by the way, spoiler alert, Democrats did end up picking up seats the first time that had happened in, you know, 60 or 70 years for At a second term midterm election. But you had folks like Newt Gingrich and others and leadership of the party saying things out loud like we're going to pick up 30 or 40 seats. All right. So the overconfidence, underconfidence has been part of the DNA for a long time. I remember some fantastic BS from Republicans in 2006 uh, when they were getting ready to just get absolutely stroked. And they were like, I don't know. Actually, it looks pretty good. I don't know. It's it's close. We got uh, we got two races here and there. So. There is a fatalism for sure on the Democratic side about the House. And look, they only have five seats to, to lose before they lose control of the House. They had been much more optimistic, and I think they are less pessimistic, let's put it that way, about the Senate. That said, this environment is terrible for Democrats. The president, the feelings of pessimism around the public. Both of those have very right, sorry, very low marks for the president, very high pessimism among the electorate. Inflation, concerns about the economy, um, a COVID pandemic that was supposed to be over by now that isn't. And then, as you pointed out, that uh, Kmart uh, study from Brookings, the feeling among many voters that Democrats culturally have gone overreached. And so you put all of those things together in a midterm year. I mean, that's just a very toxic brew for any Democrat, even the best prepared, most focused uh, Democratic candidate. And so you're right. I think there are some Republicans who believe, oh, this is going to be like 2010. We're going to win 63 seats. There, There aren't 63 seats in play. But I do think that for Democrats who think, well, you know, look, I'm in a Biden plus 10 district. I should be okay. 
I don't think you should be confident about that. That's right. I, I think that I think that's a hundred percent true. Um, I do think that there was democratic excessive glass half fullness among Democrats in the even after the 2020 election, because the 2020 election told Democrats everything that they needed to know about the electorate that they would later find out in Virginia that Elaine K. Mark would try to tell them that the guy who was the data guy for the DNC contractor tried to, that everyone has tried to tell them, which is you're getting a little, um, they're sort of the, I think it's Josh Crosshour who first came up with the concept of Democrats is the new moral majority. Uh, they have a different set of quasi-religious issues, but they are very intent on those things and talk about them even when it creeps or freaks other people out uh, in, for example, suburban voters. Um, so th- I think there was that period of, I, I sort of mark it to the fact that no one was able to, I don't even know if they tried, to tell the uh, progressive uh, Congressional Progressive Caucus, we're not coupling these two pieces of legislation. We need a win. We're going to run this bipartisan uh, infrastructure package that everybody likes, and we're going to run it. And then we can fight with Joe Manchin for the rest of the year if you want. But we're going to run this thing because the president needs a win, and we're going to do that. And the fact that they did not do that said to me that Democrats were both excessively concerned about their base early in a presidential term, number one, and number two, overconfident about how much political capital they had to play with. Is that right? I think that's fair. And I think there's also a mindset among many Democrats, but quite frankly, sort of among the political class overall. There's a certain generation that has been in Washington for the last, let's say, since 2010. All right. So they weren't there for the Clinton years or the the pre-Clinton era. And so all they've known is clash. All they've known is one party gets into power, loses that power, and then you fight to get it back. But when you do have power, it's very limited. You have a very short window to get all the things on your checklist done. And as your um, your caucus becomes, uh, when they're out of power, they become more and more angry about the things that need to get done, right? They make the list longer and longer and longer about the things that we must accomplish when we get back into power. And so regardless of what the environment looks like, regardless of what else is happening in the world, these agenda items need to get passed because this is our window. We may not get it again, four years, eight years, who knows? I call it, it's like the smash and grab of legislating. That's the, that's what I call it. You, you get your way, you go in, you get what you can and you get out and you hope that you get back into power again. But when you pass laws, those are hard to overturn, right? And so you can leave, you know, look, Chris, I, I, if you were a Democrat, you, very cynical Democrat, you come into 2021, you say, all right, we've got a five seat margin in the House. We have no margin. We're going to lose it. Yeah, yeah We're going to yeah. lose. OK, like even if we do everything right. We're going to lose. So let's just do something right. If I'm going down, I want to go down swinging and I want to go down saying, look, I look what I accomplished. I was only there for four years, two years, whatever. I. But we got these great things done, and anytime Republicans go after them in the future, like they did with Obamacare, they're going to pay the price because those things are going to become popular. So it's an incredibly cynical way to think of things. I don't know that that's how 
they are actually processing this, okay? But you can understand that mentality of we have power, why aren't we using it? We have this opportunity, why don't we get the things done that we've always said we're going to get done? And who knows, maybe it will be be popular. What they didn't appreciate was that everything around them was also collapsing, right? COVID wasn't getting better, better. Inflation was going up and people were feeling incredibly frustrated and Democrats were still talking about, you know, build back better and voting and all these other things that didn't seem connected to, to people's day-to-day lives. Um, I, w- I want to talk about redistricting, speaking yeah. of the excellent work that the Cook Political Report yes. with Amy Walter does. Yeah. Uh, I want to talk about uh, Senate primaries because it is getting nice and weird out there. But before we, uh, I want to take uh, one flight of fancy around what you're talking about before we go to concrete things. The, this idea of political capital as a finite resource was not, in my experience, until Barack Obama's first term, right? That, this, that the, the previous concept, as I recall it, was that when you get elected, you want to grow your political capital. So you want to do stuff. You want to make deals. You want to show that you are successful. You want to run your approval rating up so that people, in the, the people take you seriously and that you have cred, right? Bush tried to do that right. with, uh, with No with Child Left, left Behind. behind. Uh, the soft bigotry of low expectations for the win. Uh, uh, Certainly that was Bill Clinton's post-94 life. That was everything about Bill Clinton. Welfare reform, et cetera. Exactly. George H.W. Bush tried it. Ronald Reagan killed it. He succeeded wildly with that endeavor. What has changed in American politics today that makes it so that these miserly misers do not try to go for sixty percent, they do. I I watched Joe Biden. And I was like, "Here's a guy. He could go. He could do sixty percent. He's riding a fifty-four. Go to sixty, baby. Reach out to some Republicans. Show that you can get it done, and it'll it'll happen." Now I know Biden's a, a, a curious case because he is not beloved by his party, and he has a lot of layered things there. But it seems like in both parties, the smash and grab attitude that you talk about, this sort of um, reverse engineered parliamentary system, once we get control of all three houses, we can push through some really unpopular stuff, after which we will be thrown out of power. And then we will go sit and stew and brood until it's our chance to come back in and do, we'll throw these bums out, and then we'll throw those bums out, and then we'll put those other bums back. And they go, and they go, and and so, and so, and so, and so. So what's the change? What's the psych, there's, there's, there's a psychological block here in the parties that won't let them try it. So the whole chicken and the egg, Chris, we could spend, right, 15 hours digging through all of this. Um, Joe Biden came into office, according to Gallup, as the most polarizing president in polling history, which is quite remarkable, right? When to, to your point, which is he's Joe Biden, right? Like I could understand if, if it were Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump, okay, all the baggage, all the stuff, got it. But the reason he was as polarizing and even more polarizing than Trump is uh, he had all Democrats behind him in terms of approval, almost every Republican against him in terms of voter, you know, so 90 plus Democrats with 90 plus Republican against. And 
so if you look at that, you say, gosh, before he's even stepped into the Oval Office, Republicans are united in disapproval of him. Mm-hmm. He hasn't done a thing. If you look back at Obama first term and then go backwards, right? Clinton, George W. Bush, et cetera, et cetera, they would get 30% crossover from the other side, right? Like of 30% giving them, look, we're probably going to be, we're going to go back to our partisan corners at some point, but I'll give you benefit. But of I the hope doubt. he wins. I hope, I right, hope right, they right. do. Like a yeah. little benefit of the doubt for your first couple of months, right? A little bit of a honeymoon. Now that's completely gone. And then I look at the caucuses and Chris, you know, you and I have been here long enough. We remember the days when you had Democrats from North Dakota and, and Nebraska and Louisiana and Arkansas. And you had Republicans from Vermont. Um, Jim right? Jeffords for the, and, there right, you, you go. Take it a deep. You just, you had, uh, uh, Link, uh, Chafee, not Lincoln Chafee, but his dad, um, John Chafee, John Chafee. Right. And these folks were interested. One, they had to keep their folks at home happy. So they couldn't go along with the national brand and their folks at home bought that, right. They could make that distinction between look, Chafee's not, He's not a Southern Newt Gingrich Republican. And yeah, he's okay. He's, he's okay. Kind of guy. Bob Kerry, he's not a crazy liberal. He's a Nebraska Democrat. Don't, you know. Now, you, no matter how hard they work, so we can blame it on so many things. You are an expert on this. One of the first places I go to is the death of local media and the rise yeah, for real. of the internet in covering our politics. When I first started covering the House, all the news I would get about the candidates and members would be from the local media. Mm-hmm. There was no DC press. There was roll call, which hired a bunch of like 23 year olds who were incredibly talented. Most of them now are at big major news organizations, but it was really one inside the beltway publication. There was no Politico. There was no Axios. There was no all of the this. hotline. What there, about the hotline? There was the hotline, which didn't really report. Right. But it was very, but it was there to give you the local coverage, and it and felt the, cool because it was printed, it was faxed out, and you had this thing. It's like thirty-page fax. Oh yeah, like here's right? what here's what the Muscatine Bugle says about the chances <laughs> of Congressman Schmertz. This well, fall. and then you'd see all these stories. This is where I learned about things like fish ladders. I didn't know what a fish ladder was, but if you were in if you're in the the western part of the country, like you had to know about those salmon fish ladders and dams, and you know, I, you had to know about ag policy and those things. That today, sure, the local still matters, but not to the degree that it used to. So all politics is national, which means the caucuses now. Just think about this: when you go to a Democratic caucus meeting, there's not one person in there. Okay, maybe there are two or three, most of whom are. Uh, uh, three of them are retiring, um, who represent a district that's not urban or suburban. If you go into the Republican caucus meeting, you don't have anybody from a major urban area or even, you know, they're adjacent. Yeah, yeah. you get South Florida. You may, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, right. But for the most part, their agenda is driven by uh, the needs and, and, and concerns of an uh, ex, ex, ex-urban slash small town, slash rural. So um, it's not, I say to people all the time, it's not that the two parties 
can't agree to solve our problems, or maybe the better way that to say this is, it's not that the two parties can't agree to solve our mutual problems. It's that we don't agree what the problem is. If yeah, you yeah, ask yeah. Republicans, what are your top three issues? Immigration, taxes, right? Crime. Election for, security. For Democrats, national security, terrorism. For Democrats, climate. They put racism up there, oh, yeah. right? So it, it's, it's impossible to say, well, I want to work with the other side. Okay, on what? <laughs> because the priorities of my my uh, caucus are not anywhere on the list of your priorities. So if this is a sorting phenomenon, right? So if we talk about the great sorting of the 1990s, nationalized media, the internet arrives, and everybody goes to their corners, we lose the crossovers, we lose the John Hineses, we lo- the, these people that you're talking about. We lose Pennsylvania Republicans and Alabama Democrats. Uh, and because of that... Uh, it creates a zero-sum game effect where there is not another side to reach for, so why try? Yeah. But I wonder, looking at uh, my fellow West Virginian, uh, Joe uh, Manchin III, uh, I th- wonder if some Democrats don't look at him and cinema with a little envy, right? Now, they're red state, and Manchin is like the second, it's the second reddest state in the country. But there's got to be a little envy there in both parties for, because uh, I my theory of the case is over, and everything that you say is true, uh, the sorting, the media, the national focus, all the, the cascading effect of all of that. But I think another thing is true is that these people are overhandled now. Mm. They are over-advised, over-consulted, over-focus grouped, over-whatever. And when you have, and I know many brilliant people who have worked as political professionals. I have m- known a lot of schmoes who have worked as political professionals. And when you have a bunch of 28-year-old schmoes standing around and you say, what should I do? They're going to say, be careful. <laughs> the first thing that you should do is spend a bunch of money on negative ads and, uh, and make sure you run it through this place that's going to hire me later. And uh, attack, 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 and don't take any chances. I think that maybe I know it's a small part. No, I think that's fair. I think that's very fair. And there's a cookie cutter approach to all of this, right? Which goes, we can transition right now to your question about Republican primaries in the Senate, because look, that is Democrats. One lifeline right now is Republicans end up nominating really bad candidates. um, Because those candidates have done the following in their primaries. One just sucked up relentlessly to Donald Trump and in doing so have put themselves in a really awkward position to ha- to be able to pivot back to the center in states that are center, we can either say purple, center right, whatever, like Georgia, Arizona, Pennsylvania, um, Nevada, Pennsylvania, right? So that they are going to work way too hard in pleasing Trump, that they're going to alienate the middle, which still does matter, by the way. Independent voters becoming are incredibly important. We don't talk enough about them, but they are. Okay, so there's that uh, risk. Um, And that they beat the living daylights out of each other during the prime. So even if it's not about Trump, it's that you're seeing it in Pennsylvania right now. This guy loves China. This guy loves Hollywood. 
this guy's a terrible person. No, this guy's a terrible person. You see what he said about. So um, that is uh, certainly a concern. And I think to your point about consultants, I think there has been in the era of Trump, at least a certain amount of laziness around this, which is get Trump's endorsement. You're good to go. Right. Yep. Boom, boom. You got the most important thing in a primary the money's going to come in. Voters are going to love it. You just put up an ad with Trump next to me, Trump to camera. We can win this thing, which let's face it. It's good to have a Trump endorsement in the primary. It is probably worth a few points, but you still have to run a campaign. Mm-hmm. Right? Mo Brooks is finding this out in Alabama. Yeah. That, that guy, that has been a pain. That has been painful to watch. And David Perdue in Georgia, right? What is his Yeah, well, message? let's let's run okay, through okay. these real quick. I want to I want to run through a few of these. So everybody talks about Ohio all the time, so we'll just get it get it out of the way. Two questions about Ohio. Does it really matter because is Ohio just so Republican now that they can nominate, you know, the man in the moon? They they could they could not they could nominate Donald Trump Jr. and he and he wins in Ohio. Uh question 1 and question 2, uh I, well, how about this? If you're Tim Ryan, do who do you want to come out of the Republican primary? Uh, I would like Josh Mandel to come out of the primary. I think that's right. Yeah, because it's more than just the Trumpian thing. There's just a lot uh, that he has said and done. He's not very old, um, but in his he's had a pretty lengthy political career, so he's been all over the map on a whole host of issues. And so, being able, he'll have to be held to account for those things. Um, so I, I think I would, and he's trying as hard as he possibly can, not just to suck up to Trump, but to just go as far out as you possibly can on the ideological spectrum in order to show, I, I, I don't know who, but, you know, his, his fealty to whatever this. You're saying that burning, burning a mask while pitching Bitcoin is not the, is not the <laughs> message for Mount it. Adams in <laughs> Cincinnati? Okay, all right. I know. I mean, but you are correct that, look, I think Donald Trump Jr. would probably do better in that he just says, I'm my dad, and he wins by seven points like Donald Trump didn't. But it's all the other baggage that comes with Mandel. And then you look at... Um, I think uh, the I'm trying to think about the other place. Well, Georgia is not so, really well, look, primary. Oh, okay. So you go through. I, here, here we go. All right. So we'll go there, uh, and then let's go uh, to Pennsylvania real quick. Mm. Is Pennsylvania so blue that it doesn't? No. no? You think Pennsylvania is, is is a legit play? It's a legit toss up. Uh, the Democratic primary has not gotten as bitter and they're not spending as much money attacking each other as uh, on the Republican side. But that um, is a, that is a, that is the one where I feel like for Democrats, they're in the position the Republicans are in other, in a lot of other States, which is I look at Connor Lamb and I see the correct candidate for Pennsylvania because what they want to be in Pennsylvania, I would assume is a generic Democrat. Here is a guy in a suit. He looks like he is a democratic politician vote for him. Whereas Fetterman is risky. There are risks. This is the Herschel Walker thing in Georgia. Right. If you're the Republicans in Georgia, I, I look at the Georgia Senate race and I'm like, hey, Republicans, find the stiffest dork that you have in your congressional delegations. Rack them and stack them. Put that guy up because any generic Republican is going to be any generic, any Democrat in Georgia this year. Why take a chance? Yeah, that's that's fair. 
I do think, I mean, Fetterman is an interesting, who's the guy running is the progressive, the, the progressive in the cool race story, Lamb. cool beard. Right. Yeah. So he's got the be. You're right. He does not look like a politician, which in some ways we can argue in this day and age is, is a benefit, right? Like I'm not just some blow dried, you know, cut me out of a catalog kind of candidate. Um, he, it comes from part of the state where Democrats used to do really well, but I don't know the last time. In fact, I was asking someone, I don't even know the last time Democrats have nominated a statewide candidate, uh, from west of Philadelphia. I think that, I, yeah, basically the, the river, the river, uh, is a, is a hard line. Yeah. So it's like, that would be a new, uh, a new phenomenon. Um, and that he gets that sort of Bernie Sanders working class cred. Um, but to your point, that Bernie Sanders working class cred, is that going to be enough to win him support in the way it won Joe Biden support in and around Scranton, in and around, right, Wilkes-Barre, those sorts of places? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Is it, does he get the working class image or does he get the crazy socialist um, label? Which one is more uh, effective? But if you think about Pennsylvania as a state that Biden won, but he didn't even hit 50%. Yeah. Boy, that's, you know, it's a, it's a swing state, but it is not a blue state. It is a purple, real purple state. And it has been moving of all of this. You know, we talked about how states have moved over the last 25 years. Pennsylvania's has been pretty consistent uh, moving to the right over these last few years. I, I put Pennsylvania in the same category as Minnesota, which is it's not a Republican state yet, but it here's will be. Here's the thing about Minnesota. Here's a difference. What I think about these states that have sort of are, are purple, but still have a Democratic lean or are getting a Democratic lean. All of them have one major metro, Phoenix, Atlanta, Minneapolis, okay? And that from that one major metro, everything else goes, right? So you have the suburbs that move out from that major metro. That's what's keeping those states blue. And as the rural areas, because Arizona, put that aside for a second, but Georgia, Minnesota, those rural areas that at one point were Democratic, now, of course, are more Republican, but they're also thinning out, right? So you're not growing a population in rural Georgia. In fact, what you're getting is a, a growing suburban population. This is why North Carolina has always been so hard I know. for Democrats because there's not one major metro. You don't have a top 10 metro in or top 20 metro. You've got Charlotte and you've got Raleigh-Durham and, um, you know, you got Greensboro. And they so, love they love being 50-50 now. They just, they do, they just, just are into it. It's just really hard because you have the city. And that's really blue. And then you drive like five minutes outside of, say, um, Charlotte. And it's now pretty red. Um, so there's not the gradations. Virginia is another great example, right? You got the D.C. metro and you look at northern Virginia and it's just these circles, you know, that slowly the further away you get from uh, D.C., they start to get red. But it used to be you didn't have to go that far out of D.C. to get red. Now you have to basically go to West Virginia to get red. Though I, I did note and was impressed by 
Glenn Young can finally win and got some votes that Republicans have been leaving on the table for quite a while in suburban Richmond. Mm-hmm. Everybody, it's like Republicans had been ignoring Richmond, especially South suburbs, uh, the I, the ninety five corridor. They had been ignoring a bunch of votes there, and Youngkin took it seriously. And I th- and I I do think Virginia is more competitive. All right, before we run out of time to go, just any remaining Senate seats. Uh, I think Ron Johnson's going to be fine up there. Is my guess right now. I mean, I think the best thing Ron Johnson has going for him again is a Democratic primary that has. One, uh, the lieutenant governor right now is the front runner, very liberal. Just the seemingly the wrong, the, the most wrong possible choice for this cycle. For this cycle. Yep. Although Ron Johnson does try every cycle to, to say or do things that make his reelection harder. Okay? Yes, he is gifted. I mean, he is gifted in that way. It is very, very, uh, it, it is quite remarkable. But a late primary, remember, they, their primary, I think, is in September. Um, so you only have six weeks to get back and get on offense. Now, I'm sure, as you can see right now, uh, Democrats are already on the offense on Johnson, knowing this reality that they're not going to have a candidate for a long time. So they're trying to beat him up right now. But um, uh, Johnson's one, though, I, I just I will keep watching it only because of that point. One, he has a tendency to make things harder on himself by things he says and does. And two, it's never good to be overconfident as you started this conversation um, with saying. And um, I seem to remember, this was Tammy Baldwin in 2012, the assumption, and I quite frankly made it too, once Tommy Thompson won that primary, it was like, okay, well, that was fun. He's the better candidate. Everybody knows him. He's well-liked in the state. And he kind of, I think he literally went on vacation after the primary and kind of put it on cruise control and Democrats took advantage of that. So obviously it's not 2012, different environment, et cetera, et cetera. But I would just say, don't don't complain. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. That hangs on the edge of the table. That's yeah, that's that is yeah, that yeah. is still on the table. It's over there on the edge, but it's still on the table. Uh Arizona, that's the the I I mean, if I'm Mark Kelly, I'm like, really? Am I getting away? Am I getting away with this over here? As he's watching his colleague in Georgia getting ready to get shot out of a cannon. Uh that Raphael Warnock is like a, a marked man. And Kelly's like the Republicans, I, I, they got no names. They got no stuff. Uh, is Ducey get in? Like what the heck happens? Yeah. Ducey's not going to get in. And I think, look, to your point about this being a good environment, even a not awesome candidate can be successful, but you have two of them who are trying to be the furthest, furthest, furthest on the spectrum, ideologically and rhetorically and stylistically. Um, and, you know, that Arizona is many things. It's a quirky place. It is a, you know, 50-50 state. But it, it, here's my, my theory of the case for this entire cycle. The, the best thing that Joe Biden had going for him in his first few months was that he wasn't Donald Trump, right? Mm -hmm. And that for a country that was weary and exhausted 
Um, he was just going to be a normal, boring dude. Stop the chaos. A glass of Ovaltine goes down smooth. Yes. Everything goes down smooth. Obviously, that's not happening, right? It's still we still feel as divided and as chaotic. But I don't think that voters are looking for the, a Republican candidate for office who's going to bring back chaos. Right. Who's going to bring back tumult and controversy and fighting and nonstop, right? Now, there are some places where that is going to be successful and that will be successful in a Republican primary. But for those sort of swing voters who have turned off the news, they feel exhausted, they feel disappointed and dispirited, they aren't interested in returning to a Trumpian style politics. They really aren't. And so you do, you know, this is where Democrats could get lucky because Republicans overreach and this happens to both parties. They assume like, oh, well, they don't like the other party, so they must love us. Nope, nope. The Republican censure of Liz Cheney and uh, Adam Kinzinger, I was like, guys, you're not that far ahead. You got a good environment. You're, you got it going for you. But you ain't that far ahead that you can right. just start having unnecessary bloodbaths inside your own party. Right. Nobody wants to relitigate January 6th. That's a problem for Democrats in that voters are, have moved on and they're not interested in, in relitigating whose fault it was and how bad Trump is. But they also don't want anyone out there defending them, right? Yes. Like, let's let's pardon them. Let's set up defense funds for these patriots. Nope, nope, they're not. That's no, we don't want that either. We just we want. Can we just talk about inflation for a second? I, I keep pointing back to the Yunkin, uh, the Biden Yunkin voters, and in that uh, DGA big juicy survey that they did there, and it's like, hey, Republicans, these are the five percent of the voters that you need, and I promise you, they do not care about pardoning the Capitol rioters. This is not <laughs> this is not their issue set. So, true or false, the. Average gain of seats for the party out of power in a president's first term and midterm in the House since Ronald Reagan is twenty eight. Mm-hmm. This is a this is a if if yeah. we're throwing darts, this is a, I, my number is probably sure. a little higher the, than that, but that's about the be, area. It could be a little bit lower than that. I mean, the good news so Democrats have two structural things going for them this year. One on the Senate side, they're not defending any states that Trump won. Yeah, it's been a long time since a party hasn't had to defend at least one state. Yeah, they got a good presidential map. candidate, right? So, no Indianas, no Missouris, no West Virginias. Okay, no money pits. Well, Georgia's a little bit of a money pit, but uh, it's still that is not having to try to defend uh, Heidi Heitkamp. Heidi Heitkamp, exactly. Okay, now let's move to the House um, redistricting. Democrats played hard. And surprisingly well, they did surprisingly well, both from their own tactical decisions, but court decisions have also helped them. And Republicans decided to play a little bit safer in places like Texas. Now, again, we know there are short and long term consequences for all of this. Right. What the maps are going to look like today versus 10 years from now, how how they're going to look based on demographic changes, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, Republicans seem to, to believe that it was better to shore up their incumbents than to try to go for broke and be a little too cute 
and, you know, try to skim a little here and there to gain 40 seats only to find half of those come back in, you know, in the next election. So those two structural things could put a, help to put something of a cap, potentially, if the bottom doesn't drop out. Um, and I think what we're going to start seeing, you know, look, the fact that we've seen 30 Democratic retirements tells you a lot, right? They don't want to come back and have to either, one, fight really hard to barely win, if or lose, of course, would be not even less fun. Um, it's not fun being the minority. Um, and, you know, the the worry for a party at this point who's in, in power is that their incumbents don't take the election seriously enough. I think Democrats take it seriously enough. But it, now it may be just a, a fatalism, right? If, if the problem in, you know, 2006 and 2010 and 1994 was our guys aren't taking this seriously enough, like, no, it's bad. I know you got 65% in your last election. I know everybody in your district loves you and knows you, but it's bad, yeah. right? They don't have to convince Democrats of that. Now they have to convince them like, dude, it's worth it. Just stay. Yeah, just try. Just, just try. try. One time. <laughs> so if we're playing, you remember the on uh, the Price is Right, the Yodeler game where the little guy, the mountain climber goes up the mountain. He's got a range finder of prices there. So if we're if we're playing the house yodeler, yeah. Uh, and I'm Joe Biden. I'm saying it'd be great if so if if, if you say uh, uh, mirror, mirror on the wall, you can have anything you want. Yeah, I want the Democrats to gain seats in the House. I know that's not going to happen. I'm thinking maybe losing the House, not so bad, right? But if it's a small majority for Republicans. So if I'm the political team at the White House, if I am Joe Biden, I'm saying, hey, the Republicans are probably going to take the House. Let's see if we can hold it down there at 10, 12, yeah. as opposed to 30, and let Kevin McCarthy be the one picking pieces of Louis Gohmert out of his face for exactly. the next two years. It just makes it makes McCarthy vulnerable. Yep. First of all, for the speakership at large, right? Because then you get folks like Trump weighing in, right? Can you see the next day saying, Kevin, how did you blow this? Anybody could have picked up more seats than you did. I can't do the voice. So. People, are, people are saying it's the lowest number of seats ever <laughs> won by anyone. It's the worst. You're, you're not my Kevin anymore. <laughs> um, so he would have problems there. And then they would have to impeach Trump. They would have to impeach Biden right away. Exactly. The, the Freedom Caucus would have the art exactly. on a zip line to exactly. do it. Yep. Exactly. And um, so, but look, Life is will be miserable for the Biden administration, even if Republicans have a majority of five, because they are going to do all those things you just listed. The impeachments, the I'm, I don't know about impeachment, but not, not it's not inconceivable, but that you'll definitely have the hearings and the right, the, the, the bringing the, everybody up in front of the panels over and over and over again. Um, so it will be unpleasant to say the very least. Um, and uh, but to your point, a, a smaller gain would give Democrats an opportunity to say, you know, one, good luck 
with that caucus of yours, McCarthy, but two, to say, you know what? Maybe, just maybe, Republicans have overreached. Right. right? Republicans were the ones who misread the environment. Republicans were the ones that thought that the public wanted more Trump um, instead of more, you know, unity or whatever. Um, so that's not a bad, that's not a bad thing. But that's, that's why history the saying- tells us that it's not likely to be a, a small number. The, uh, that's why the saying is you're never as far up as you think you are, but that means you're never as far down as you think you are either. <laughs> right. This is why, right. this, this is why people have to subscribe to the cook political. That, I mean, with Amy Walter, because house, you know, can I, I, I just have to, my favorite thing, uh, well, my favorite thing about you as an analyst, and I wish more people could do this and learn to do this is you never push yourself into an opinion or something that you don't feel you never, you're not afraid to be like, I don't know. Well, we'll have to have the election and find out. I wish more people had the humility that you do. Um, you know, so much and you've done so much that you could be way more full of it if you wanted to, and you don't. And I think, I think your subscribers are lucky to have you. Thank you, Chris. And I, uh, well, thank you. And that's why I enjoy talking with you as well, because we can have this conversation without having to like try to dunk on one another. I just, it's exhausting to me. So uh, you come with no BS and I bring all the BS. So that way we even yeah, it out to an you average know, you amount. You know a lot of which you <laughs> speak. And it is interesting. I mean, I was just talking about this with someone the other day is it's hard us Gen Xers, right? We're now the folks um, at, at the, in leadership positions, the baby boomers are off retiring it's our world for the next like 10 minutes before right, the millennials exactly. come. And then the millennials get taken over by robots. So, you know, we have that going for us. <laughs> at least at least it's humans that will replace us. But we are the last folks. I mean, again, as the baby boomers leave, we are the, the only folks that remember a Washington before 2010. To your point, before we had the Tea Party and the Obama and the, and the back and forth and the back and forth and the back and forth. Uh, uh, that we've had uh, for these last, you know, 12 years. And I'm not going to be one of those folks that's like, oh, it was so much better than let's go back to the old days. There was a lot that was wrong with the old days and we can't go backwards. But we got to figure out like, well, what's the new model? And I, I don't know what that looks like right now. Everybody wants the answer to, well, what is it going to look like if it's not going to be, you know, again, the, the John Chafee's, and the Howell Heflins hanging out and smoking cigars together, uh, that's fine. But this seems absolutely unstable. And there is there are very few people who have the muscle memory of a different time. And it's not rewarded. I mean, that's, and you know that better than anybody. Being uh, right isn't good enough. Uh, being uh, the, you know, the person who is being stable and, and <laughs> not trying to create waves, that doesn't get you very far in a town where the incentive structure is chaos and controversy and outrage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Performative outrage. You've all lived in, uh, hear our prayer. Uh, but I will, but I will just say this one Pollyannish thing because it is my nature. Mm. I do see that there is a, what I call the goodwill caucus. 
that is forming, and it is a bipartisan caucus, right? There are a number of senators now, and you would include Manchin and Cinema in them, you would include Susan Collins, you would include Mitt Romney, you would include a bunch of these people who are, and and what I like about it is it is ideologically diverse, right? People would say, you know, you can say from Ben Sass, maybe the most conservative by by the definition of what conservatism is, most conservative member of the Senate, but he can but he is willing to talk in goodwill and good faith with other people. And I do see the beginnings of that in Congress where there is a, gr- a bipartisan group of people who say, "Hey, we probably don't agree on much, but let's not let's try to be a little less awful uh, to each other and try to treat each other like human beings." So just there's a little of that. There's Thank a little Thank you. Thank you for that little silver lining in an otherwise very cloudy and very dark. It's very dark out there. But not when you were with us. Amy, thank you so much for being here. You're just the best, and we are grateful for your time. Thank you, Chris. Okay, everybody. Uh, Jonah will be back at some point, I assume, uh, or he won't, and I'll do this forever. Who knows? Uh, But no, I'm sure Jonah will be back soon, and he'll have more to tell you about the Super Stinky Cigars. Uh, So with that, have a great rest of your day. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.